morning. So today we're going to continue in our series in the book of Acts. Last week, if you remember, we left the disciples. When we left the disciples, they were gathered in the, the upper room. Acts 1.15 says, The company of persons was in all about 120. These 120 people probably represents much, if not all, of the followers of Jesus Christ at that time. Only 120 people. They were waiting. They were waiting for the promise that Jesus had given them in Acts 1.8, if you remember. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So what we have is about 120 people in this upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And then, and what they were doing when they were waiting, we talked about this last week. Verse 13 says, all these were with one accord devoting themselves to prayer. They were pulling together and praying earnestly. Now last week, because of time, I had to cut the sermon a little short. You guys remember that? Were you here? We went a little long. So I just want to quickly highlight what we missed. We're going to move on today into Acts chapter 2, but I want to highlight what we missed from the end of Acts chapter 1. In your notes, not your notes today, but your notes from last week, it was titled, Trusting in God's Purposes. As the disciples were waiting on the Lord, they needed to deal with an issue. It was the... uh, the elephant in the upper room. They had all pulled together, but one of their company was missing. Judas Iscariot. Judas was no longer among them. He was one of them, but he had betrayed Jesus. He had betrayed Jesus to the the Jewish religious leaders of the day, sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. And this had apparently caused some question in the the band of of followers of Jesus Christ. Some question about his control, his sovereignty, his purposes. Judas was a a fellow disciple. Judas was chosen by Jesus. But shouldn't Jesus, God come in human flesh, have known Judas' heart? Why did God let this happen? That's the question Peter answers in verses 15 to 26. And at the heart of the answer is verse 16. Peter says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Peter says that the scripture concerning Judas had to be fulfilled. What scripture had to be fulfilled? He tells us in verse 20. He says, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let any another take his office. This is basically a summary of the verses 17 through 26. These verses speak of Judas's death in a desolate field of blood and his replacement by another apostle, Matthias. Peter's point, Peter points to the prophecy in Psalms, it was written by David and inspired by the Holy Spirit a thousand years prior to Judas's birth And what Peter is saying is that that when God speaks, when God plans, when God has a purpose, his 
plan, His purpose, His word will be fulfilled, even if it takes a thousand years. He says that even in the life of a a pretender and a betrayer like Judas, God's purposes are fulfilled. God is not surprised by treachery. He's not overwhelmed by deceit. God, in fact, uses even the, the sins of humanity for His purposes. Therefore, even when things don't look good, and they couldn't have looked much worse at the betrayal of Jesus by Judas, even when things are difficult, even when things are terrible, even when terrible sin is involved, we can still trust in God's plan and purposes. Not Judas, not even Satan working in him could thwart God's purposes. Now, the result of Judas' betrayal was the murder of Jesus Christ on the cross. A terrible sin by all involved, including Judas, but, but completely and totally in line with God's plan and purpose. Peter is telling this group of 120 people that they can always, always trust in God's promises, His purposes. You can always trust God to keep His word, to keep His promise. And that's what they're waiting for. That's what they're in this room waiting for. They're waiting for God to fulfill His promise to them. In Acts chapter 1, verse 4, we read this, And while staying with them, He, Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. That's what they're doing. They're waiting for the promise of the Father. So they're waiting. And what was that promise? Thanks, Gary. It was a rhetorical question. No, I'm just kidding. You're always welcome to answer any of my questions. That's correct. The promise was to be clothed from on high with power. That's how Luke puts it in the Gospel of Luke. To receive the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And that brings us to our message for today. It brings us to Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. A, a, a powerful passage, a powerful passage in the life of the church where we will see the promise of the Father fulfilled when the Holy Spirit comes upon His people. Now, the first thing we want to look at this morning is the timing of the Spirit's coming. Really, the, the why and the when of the Spirit's coming. Verse 1 says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, They were all together in one place. So the 120 are all together, probably still in the upper room. They're still devoting themselves to prayer. They're now, with Peter's exhortation, trusting in God's promises, His purposes. It's the day of Pentecost. Now when we hear the word Pentecost, what do we think of? We think of what we're about to study, the coming of the Holy Spirit. But you know, Pentecost was already, it was a Jewish holiday, a Jewish tradition. And you ever, have you ever thought about why Jesus chose Pentecost as the day to pour out his spirit? And I see two important reasons. The first reason is, is practical. Pentecost means 50th. We've talked about this before. It took place, Pentecost took place, the day of Pentecost took place 50 days after Passover. Passover was the celebration of God's deliverance of his people from Egypt when the the children of Israel put the blood on the doorposts and the angel of death passed over. 
the house. So it's 50 days after Passover. And it's one of the three Jewish feasts that required a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, the holy city. Therefore, on Pentecost, there would be many people in Jerusalem from other nations. We see this in verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Now Luke doesn't, doesn't literally mean every nation. There were no American Indians or Aboriginal Australians there. He's speaking of the known world, the, the Greco-Roman world of the day. And he's speaking about every nation where a Jewish person would reside because it was only the Jews that returned to Jerusalem for Pentecost. The Jewish people, if you remember from your studies in the Old Testament, were dispersed among the nations. When the northern, remember Israel had been divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. When those kingdoms fell to the Assyrian and Babylonian empires, those conquering kingdoms then took the the Jews in the land and removed them and put them in different nations, in different places. We see an example of that in the book of Daniel with Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. They're in another nation. They were Jews taken from the land of Israel. Some had later returned to to Israel, to Palestine, but many had remained in those Gentile nations. They had made lies for themselves in those nations, but they would return to Jerusalem on Pentecost. Verse 9 through 11, gives us a list of of some of the nationalities of those religious pilgrims, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Pergama and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. So Jews by birth and proselytes, converts, to Judaism, so converts, people that were Gentiles that converted to Judaism, from many nations were present in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And this is going to come in really handy to give a practical demonstration of both the the Spirit's power and purpose. Remember the Spirit's purpose? Acts 1.8 says, is to give power to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. Therefore, when the Spirit comes on Pentecost we get a glimpse of his power to reach the nations by seeing what he does among these peoples from other nations. And that's very practical, and we'll talk about that later in a moment. So he's got these people there. That's the practical side. There are thousands of people there in Jerusalem from the nations all around on Pentecost. Now, the second reason the Spirit came on Pentecost is more symbolic. What was Pentecost? Pentecost was the part of the Jewish Harvest Festival. It's also called the Festival of Weeks, the Festival of Reaping, and the, festival, and the Day of First Fruits. So if you're, if you're connecting here, it's a Harvest Festival, the Day of First Fruits. I hope you can see the, the significance, the beautiful symbolic significance that happens on that day, that day. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit signifies the beginning of the mission that Jesus gave his disciples. Be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And what we see on the day of Pentecost is the first fruits. The day of first fruits, we see the the first fruits 
of a great harvest of souls. In Acts 2, chapter 41, we read, So those who received his word on, received the word, this is on the day of Pentecost, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people harvested for God on the day of Pentecost, on the Feast of Harvest. These were the first fruits of the great harvest that continues today. There's also another symbol there. Pentecost had become, it's not laid out in Scripture, but shortly after, in in the intertestinal period, Pentecost had become a celebration, a remembrance of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. So, think about it. They're celebrating the giving of the law, and the Spirit comes. Think about Galatians 5.18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. It's not that the law is abolished, but the Spirit comes now, and you're no longer under the law. So the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost is both practical and symbolic. And both the practical, the people from all nations, and the symbolic, the harvest, the day of first fruits, the the, uh, not being under the law, both all of that points to the purpose for the coming of the Holy Spirit. To empower God's people to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. That's what Pentecost represents. That's what it should represent in our minds. It's unfortunate to me that the outpouring of the Spirit on Pentecost has become more associated with this speaking in tongues than with the harvest of souls. We'll come back to the miracle of tongues in a few minutes, but just be sure at this point that you see the main focus of of this day. Pentecost is a feast of harvest in Jerusalem, and on that day, Jesus pours out His Spirit, and 3,000 people are harvested for the kingdom of darkness, from the kingdom of darkness into God's kingdom. The events that take place on Pentecost are meant to remind us of the power and the purpose of the Holy Spirit, to remind us of the fact that that, from that day forward, from that day on, all who trust in Jesus Christ will receive this same Spirit, this same Spirit with this same power to be used for the same purpose, to be witnesses, to harvest souls to the ends of the earth. Pentecost was the the beginning. Many would say it was the birth. It represents the birth of the church, the inauguration of the church age. An age that Jesus says will continue. In Matthew 24, 14, He says, this age will continue until the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. And with the coming of this new era, the, the church age, the Spirit gives three powerful signs. That's our second point this morning, the signs of the Spirit's coming. Three supernatural signs for our senses. And the first sign is a sound. Verse 2 says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. This is big. This is a big deal. Suddenly, unexpectedly, the disciples were waiting, but all of a sudden the Spirit comes. The disciples hear a sound from heaven. Notice that the sound was not a, it wasn't a mighty rushing wind. It was like a mighty rushing wind. The Spirit isn't a wind. The Spirit isn't isn't physical. The Spirit is supernatural. And Luke 
does his best to describe this supernatural event with limited human language. Now this sound, like a mighty rushing wind, would really, in the, in the mind of those present, in the Jewish mind of the day, be immediately, though, however, connected to the Spirit. Because both in the Hebrew language, which they had grown up and learned, and to the Greek language, which the world spoke at the time, the words for wind and spirit are the same word. The Hebrew word for wind and spirit is ruah, and the Greek word for wind and spirit is pneuma. Same word, meaning wind and spirit. And in Scripture, both these words are used for the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word, the New Testament, the Greek word. So when the Spirit comes, the first sign that announces His presence is a sound like a mighty rushing wind, a mighty rushing pneuma, a mighty rushing spirit. The sound reminds us that the Spirit is now from that day forward ever present among the people of God. It filled the entire house where they were sitting, and it fills all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit's power, the power of this mighty rushing wind is available to all who yield their lives to Jesus' mission, to all who give themselves to being His witnesses. So the first sign is this powerful sound, this mighty rushing wind. The second sign is, is a sight. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and, and rested on them, on each one of them. It's in verse 3 of Acts chapter 2. Notice again, it's not actual fire, but it's as of fire. The spirit is not wind, the spirit is not fire, but he can sound like wind and appear like fire. Fire in Scripture is is often a symbol of God's presence among his people. Think of Moses and the burning bush. Think of the the pillar of fire that, that guided the children of Israel through the wilderness by night. Think of the consuming fire on Mount Sinai. In Exodus 24, 17, we read, Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. The Lord's glory appeared like a devouring fire. Now something very interesting takes place at Pentecost with regards to this fire. Notice that the fire in the Old Testament is is a, is a unified whole. It's, a, it's a, a large, single fire. It's the burning bush. It's the pillar of fire in the desert. And it's that consuming fire on Mount Sinai. And in the Old Testament, the emphasis is on Israel's corporate relationship with God. That's not to say that individuals in the Old Testament didn't have personal relationships with God, but the emphasis was corporate. The emphasis was on Israel, the nation. But on the day of Pentecost, it seems, because the word divided is used, it seems it comes down in this unified whole and then divides and rests on each one of those present individually. I think this says two things to us. First, this shows that all who were present were baptized with the Spirit. The Spirit has, and His power are not just for the twelve apostles. It wasn't just for the, the leaders. It's not for pastors and missionaries alone. But the Spirit is for every believer. In this case, all 120 men and women were filled, 
baptized with the Holy Spirit. And therefore, all 120, get this, brothers and sisters, get all 120 were to engage in the mission to which the Spirit had given. He baptized them all, therefore Acts 1.8 applied to all of them. We need to remember that next week when we come to our ministry fair and we were given opportunities at church to be involved in ministry here. And inside, as Tom put it, inside and outside of these walls. We're all to be ministers of the gospel in some way. So that's the first thing that I think this division represents. And everyone was filled with the Holy Spirit. And second, the fact that the fire, the the presence of God, rests on each one, each person. This speaks to the, the now individual relationship with God through His Spirit. The emphasis in the Old Testament was on the corporate relationship. The emphasis on the New Test in the New Testament is on the personal relationship through the Spirit. In his commentary on this passage, John Stott wrote, "The Spirit now rests upon every believer individually. The emphasis from Pentecost onwards is on the personal relationship of God to the believer through the Holy Spirit." So the emphasis is now on our personal relationship with God. Each one of us is called to have a personal vibrant, spirit-filled relationship with our Creator, with God, through the power of the Spirit that He gives us. But that's not to say that we're not still to be unified, because we are. We're unified in Christ. We're the body of Christ. And we're unified because we share that, 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 that same fire. It divided, but that fire was all the Spirit. We all have the same Spirit. The same Spirit sent to empower us for the same mission. We're unified through the Spirit in the same mission. The mission of the church. A mission that reaches to all nations and includes every believer. One of our core values at Bridges is to to include every member in ministry. Because God has included every member in ministry. Every believer is given the power of the Spirit to be His witnesses. And that takes us to our third sign, which points directly to our mission. The first two signs are a sound and a sight. The third is strange speech. Verse 4, And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there, there seems to be, well, there is, controversy when you talk about this thing of speaking in tongues. And I have a certain understanding of that, of why that is. There's some passages that are, are difficult to understand. What does this mean? And are we supposed to do this? And does it happen all the time? But we really don't have to get into that today. Because when it comes to this passage in Acts here, there needn't be any controversy. This passage is very straightforward about what speaking in other tongues is, right here. The Greek word for tongue is, is glossa. Speaking in tongues, you've maybe heard glossolalia. It's the speaking in tongues. It means, that the word glossa means tongue, language, or speech. The sign was that those who were filled with the Spirit began to speak in not their own, but other tongues. 
They spoke not their own language, but other known languages. The tongues spoken of on the day of Pentecost were not what some would call a heavenly or personal prayer language. The tongues spoken on the day of Pentecost were other known languages. This is verified in verses 6 through 8. And at this sound, probably the, the sound of that mighty rushing wind, at that sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own, lang- in his own native language? So the, the, the 120, the main bulk of them were from Galilee. They spoke a Galilean dialect. And the multitudes were amazed because they were hearing them speak in their own languages. The sign of this strange speech, the ability to speak other languages, was a demonstration of God's sovereign power. As the Spirit gave them utterance, it was the power of the, by the power of the Spirit they were able to speak these other languages. And it showed that this, this power that's promised in Acts 1.8 really was intended to inv- advance the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. So when the Spirit comes on Pentecost, He comes with an unmistakable supernatural power. He manifests His presence with sound and sight and strange speech. He inaugurates the birth of the church with these three miraculous signs. But as you know, these signs are not the norm when the Spirit comes, when you're filled with the Spirit. In fact, two of these three signs don't occur at all again at all in the book of Acts. This is a a unique occurrence when the Spirit came to the inaugurate, in the inauguration of the church. Pentecost is a, a dramatic statement that the Spirit will be present in the life of every believer. That the Spirit will fill all who surrender to Him. It's a miraculous event that takes, that gives validity to God's new people. It's, it's God's stamp of approval. This is my people now. This is my church. This is the people I'm going to work in and through. So if these miraculous signs are not part of what every believer will experience when they are filled with the Spirit, we need to ask the question, what is the essence of the Spirit's coming? What's at the heart of it? What can we expect to experience when we're filled with the Spirit? And I think we get a big clue to the essence of the Spirit's coming in our lives or the essence of the Spirit's filling of our lives when we look not at the fact that those who were filled with the Spirit miraculously spoke different languages, but if we look at what they were saying. Verse 11 tells us, those pilgrims, those religious Jews who had come from the nations said this, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. They were filled with the Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues, other languages, and what they spoke about were the mighty works of God. They were glorifying God. They were speaking of His greatness. They were honoring God for who He was, for what He had done. And what is the mightiest work of God? The work that I believe they were most certainly telling about. That was the work of God sending His 
Son, Jesus Christ. The work that we call the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. The work that's summarized in John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. They certainly spoke of this, the mightiest work of God, the salvation of the world. When these men and women were filled with the Spirit, they couldn't help but tell of God's mighty works. John Piper says this, being filled with the Holy Spirit here, he's speaking in the this book of Acts, is being overwhelmed with the greatness of God. Since the Spirit was giving them utterance, and since the utterance was God's greatness, I take the fullness of the Spirit to mean that the Spirit's experience of the greatness of God becomes our experience of the greatness of God. That's the essence of the fullness or the baptism that they received, an overwhelming experience of the greatness of God and a spilling over in courageous, passionate praise and witness. Here's my less poetic summary. The essence of being filled with the Spirit is that you both experience and can't help tell people about the mighty works of God. You experience and then you can't help but tell people about the mighty works of God. The essence is not a a sound like a mighty rushing wind, not a sight like tongues of fire, and not even strange speech. These are all miraculous signs to help people then and us now to understand the importance, the purpose, and the power of the Spirit's coming. But the essence, the heart of being filled with the Spirit is both an experience of His greatness through the Spirit And then an overwhelming desire to tell people about that greatness, those mighty works. To be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We know this because that's what Acts 1.8 says, right? You'll receive power to be my witnesses. That's the essence of the filling of the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what we're going to see as we study the book of Acts. When people are filled with the Spirit... We don't hear the mighty rushing wind again. We don't see the tongues of fire. There are a couple miraculous things that go on. There's even some tongue speaking. But what we get practically every time is the overflow of the greatness of God in the lives of those who are filled. What we get are empowered witnesses. That's what we'll see as we walk through the book of Acts. Those who are filled with the Spirit are those who are proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the mighty works of God in Christ Jesus. Now, if it's true, if the essence of being filled with the Spirit is that you both experience and can't help but tell people about the greatness of God, about His mighty works, then we need to ask ourselves some questions. These questions are actually in your small group notes. These questions I'm going to mention here, they're in, your, they're in your small group's notes. These are the application questions that I hope we can wrestle with in our small groups. Here they are. Am I experiencing the greatness of God in my life? Do I know His presence? Do I experience His love, His forgiveness, and His mercy? 
Do I have the joy of the Lord? Am I experiencing victory over sin? Basically, am I being transformed by the power of God's Spirit? And out of that, overflowing from that, am I telling others about the mighty works of God in my life, in the world, through Christ Jesus? Am I telling others about the mighty works of God? Or put another way, have I received the Spirit's power to be a witness with both my works, my life, how I live, and my words, the things I say? If the answer to these questions is basically no, then the application is clear, and it's not do another Bible study. It's not come to church more. It may involve some prayer. The answer is be filled with the Holy Spirit. And even if the answer is yes, and the application is still the same, continue to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We've talked about this, that being filled with the Spirit is a continual process. Paul said, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, to be filled with the Spirit is a sovereign work of God. God does it. It's the Spirit that comes. It's the Spirit. It's God who gives you the Spirit. It's a gift. It's a God who fills you with the Spirit. Our part is always, this is always our part, by the way. Our part to the filling of the Spirit in our lives is surrender. To surrender control of our lives to God. If we seek to fill ourselves with other, with our own personal wants and desires, our own perceived needs, then there'll be no room for the Spirit. We wouldn't have surrendered to Him. We need to open ourselves to the gift of the Spirit, to receiving the filling of the Spirit. We surrender control to Him. When we surrender control to Him, then He will fill us. D.L. Moody was, was to have a crusade in England. An elderly pastor protested. Why do we need this Mr. Moody? He's uneducated and inexperienced. Who does he think he is anyway? Does he think he has a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? A younger, wiser pastor rose and responded, No, but the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on Mr. Moody. So the question really is, for us, does the Holy Spirit have a monopoly on you, on me? Have we surrendered control to Him? Like the 120 in the upper room who were filled on the day of Pentecost, are we on our knees before Him, devoting ourselves to prayer, surrendering to His purposes in our lives? That's when the Spirit comes. That's when the Spirit will fill you with His presence. That's when you'll experience the greatness of God. And that's when God's greatness will overflow into the lives of others. That's when you will be his witnesses. I'd ask that you would pray with me to that end for us. Pray with me that we would be filled with with his spirit, that we would understand that we would know God's greatness and it would overflow into our relationships, into the people we come in contact with on a daily basis. They would see something in us and that something would be the Spirit of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the transforming power that the Spirit brings. And we would then be able to 
not only be a witness, but an amazing witness. Would you pray with me as, as Dave comes to lead us in communion this morning? Father God, we as a, a body of believers, and I believe that many, if not all of us, would agree with this. We surrender control of our lives to you. We ask for that free refill that Charlie spoke about this morning, that you would fill us with your spirit, not for our own wants, not for our own power, not for our own desires, not so we can do some stuff on our own, Father, but so that you could work in and through our lives, so that you could transform us as you did these 120 people, these 120 people who then went and changed their world. I pray for the filling of the Spirit that we might be used by you to change our world. In Christ's name, amen.